Hi, I'm Mikey. Welcome to Everything Aviation Podcast. I'm a microlight pilot and I've had the privilege of flying some very, very cool aircraft over the years. I've been around the aviation industry. I really love hearing people's stories and I thought other people would love it too. So why not put all these stories in one place and talk to some very, very cool aviators. All that needs for you now is to sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. My next guest today is a really, really fantastic one. Usually we're talking to pilots and everything on today. But we have a special one who may or may not get to the ISS, which is the International Space Station. Killian Murphy is my next guest, and he's set to be Ireland's first astronaut. Killian, how are we? I'm doing good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad. Killian, how, how does one even get into looking at getting towards space well so in my case it was a decision that i made when i was choosing my course in university i was going to study physics in ucb and uh, i i decided that was probably a good time at the start of my university career to decide what i wanted to get out of it in the end so having a look at the three uh, degrees that you could get in physics at the time well i think it's still the same ones you could do experimental physics theoretical physics or physics with astronomy and space science and I think most people might agree with the one that I thought was the most exciting uh, sounding. So I ended up going with the astronomy and space science specialization. Uh, and again, I had to then think what I could do with that, where that could take me. And uh, I, was, I was always taught to aim high so that even if you fall short of your goals, you'll still end up doing something pretty impressive, pretty entertaining. So uh, I decided in that moment, uh, Jesus, good eight years ago by now that uh, I was going to aim to become an astronaut and set myself on that path. So uh, for, for a good while, I'm going close to a decade. Actually, no, it pretty much is a decade. 2011, I started my, my undergraduate degree. So um, about 10 years now, I've been training myself in all the various different ways that one has to, to try and become an astronaut. That's amazing. Have you always had an interest in space from an early age? Since I was young, I definitely always had an interest in space and science. Uh, I was one of those kind of curious, nerdy kids who just couldn't absorb enough information about everything. But, you know, uh, I, I did have that interest, but I was also interested in, in medicine. I was interested in being a soldier. I was a typical kid who wanted to do absolutely everything that struck them as cool or fun. So, you know, it's not something that crystallized at an early age, but I definitely had the interest. Brilliant. And what is, because you're, you're going through the selection process now with the European Space Agency. What, or how, how do you even apply for something like that? Well, so the applications are still ongoing. They were supposed to close a few days ago, but because Lithuania has joined as a new associate member with ESA, they've extended the deadline until the 18th of June. So the applications are currently open. Uh, the, the requirements to apply are actually quite relaxed in the European Space Agency. So if you're European and you fancy becoming an astronaut, the minimum requirement is quite low. You need to have a master's degree uh, in a relevant field, which covers a lot of things. So it's not only what you might think of being an engineer or scientist, but also it covers a lot of things outside of that, IT skills or communication skills, psychological skills, all these kinds of things that can prove useful in space, they, they can qualify you. So uh, you, you can have all of that sort of stuff, plus three years of professional experience after getting your master's degree. Uh, and being from 
member state of ESA. So that, that's the absolute minimum bar. Uh, then obviously you also need to consider you need to be in good health and whatnot. You'll be pretty quickly eliminated if you don't have that. But uh, you don't need to meet this kind of image that everyone has as an astronaut and have to be like peak physical specimen. You know, why aren't they at the Olympics? You don't need to be extremely fit. In fact, they've actually been advising that being too fit could be a problem because extra muscle then means more deterioration in space. Wow, that's something I never thought of because I, I think I read Tim Peake's book quite recently and he was saying as well that they had to do treadmill stuff every day just to keep the muscle mass and everything. And he and said by... they need to do two hours of uh, weighted, like high resistance training because there's no gravity the rest of the time. Wow, because it's again, it's something because because it's such an a, an alien environment, is to say, excuse the pun. Um, it, you don't think about that. You you don't think about oh, gravity is going to be a problem, even though it, it, there, there isn't any. You need some sort of way to to stay in your sleep pod or stay on on the treadmill and stuff like that. Well, I mean, for the sleep pod, you just tie yourself to it. Essentially, <laughs> imagine something being tied to a tree. That's a little bit what sleeping in space is. Uh, you're in a sleeping bag that's tied down to something, but. Um, yeah, I mean, they have all sorts of strategies for managing it. And before someone gets around to applying to be an astronaut, at least I hope, in my case, I'm very well aware of like the downsides to being an astronaut and going to space. Uh, but I would hope most people who are applying are also similarly well-informed that it's not just something really cool or exciting to do, but it's very challenging and it will be a guaranteed detriment to your health. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's something I can't even get my head around myself. Um, I don't think, I, I would like to think I'd go to space commercially someday if, if, if Virgin um, kick off with this, but it would definitely be on, be on the bucket list. But for, for yourself, because um, it's such a, a, a dangerous environment uh, to be in, but it's, it's such an awesome thing to do. What, what has your training looked like so far? What have you had to do to get to where you are at this point? Right. Well, so I've done uh, kind of a little bit all across the board. Uh, obviously, the academics, I'm an astrophysicist. Uh, I've done my master's degree in space science and technology after the bachelor's that I already discussed. Uh, I did my master's thesis in the European Astronaut Center, where I was actually studying uh, the use of in-situ resources. So this is a kind of like a golden term in space is uh, in-situ resource utilization. So it's using materials already on the moon to do things on the moon. So we don't have to bring them there. Uh, and it was specifically uh, using lunar rock and other materials already on the moon for building radiation shielding to protect you from radiation in space while you're on the moon for purposes of ESA's future plans to build a base on the moon. So my master's thesis was about researching that and how well all of that performed in building a simulation to test the different designs that people might come up with. Um, then I recently, as of last October, my contract ended. So I was doing two years as an Irish national trainee, again, with the European Space Agency, but this time in the European Space Astronomy Center in Madrid, where I was working as part of the science operations team for uh, not even Europe, but the whole world's most successful space telescope to date, the Gaia Space Telescope, which is uh, still in operation for uh, another few years yet. And it is mapping a significant portion of the Milky Way to an unprecedented uh, accuracy where we will not know, will know not only which direction they're in, but exactly how far they are, how bright they are, 
So it's uh, uh, the first time we will have a solid graph on exactly where a significant portion of the Milky Way is and how they are moving with respect to one another over time. So this is a very interesting and exciting mission and it has been, when I say it's the most successful, it has by a significant margin, the most scientific publications have come from this one mission than any other in history today. Wow, that's, that's amazing, well done. <laughs> Thanks. No, I can't take too much credit for the mission, but I was very proud to work with them for a while. Um, so that covers the academic side of things. And then physically speaking, uh, I, I, yeah, these days I'm ramping up my training a bit. So I'm trying to do a half marathon run every month. Uh, I get out and do a 10K every week. And other than that, I am trying to keep on the bike, keep running, exercising at home, bodyweight training mostly but keeping fit and healthy all of the time. Like I say, not to be, I'm not going to any world championships and anything, but I am keeping healthy and keeping my weight low as well, because when you consider it can cost a hundred grand for every kilo you're sending to space, losing a kilo of body weight makes actually a surprisingly big difference. Um, and then another part that people may not think of and that I've just recently had a big opportunity to work on is the psychological and interpersonal aspect. So obviously cultivating my professional network is just part of trying to be part of this industry, all of these jobs, I'm meeting new people and connecting with them. But recently I was in Poland for a two week analog astronaut mission where I was put with five other people, only one of whom I'd ever met before. The six of us were locked into this analog moon habitat, a, a facility made to represent what a future face on the moon might look like, at least on the inside. And uh, the six of us had to live in this space together. We didn't go outside. We didn't see any natural light. We had to work together and do a whole bunch of research while we were at it uh, for two weeks. And so that kind of psychological stress environment uh, uh, or uh, the skills that you need to still work effectively with a team, especially as people's mood deteriorates because they're missing things and they're, they're, they're denied the, the comforts that normally help keep them happy or effective. Uh, we have to have the psychological strategies to both manage our own emotional states and keep ourselves going, as well as keeping good working relations with the people around us. That's mad. And that's, that's only for two weeks. You could do that for six months up in, in, in the ISS. Uh, well, yeah, on ISS, you'd be talking six months as standard. Uh, people also are doing more extreme versions of the same. Uh, there's uh, similar activities all over the world. I also work with the Austin Space One that does one month long uh, missions like this. The next one being this coming October in a desert in Israel for the Amity 20 mission. Um, and also people do things like in Hawaii, there, uh, NASA has one that's underwater. Uh, and uh, also people doing expeditions on uh, research ships or to Antarctic stations. Uh, they have very similar experiences. It's limited people, very limited resources, and you learn the same kinds of skills from all these kinds of activities. Wow, that's amazing. Are you, are you gonna have a hand in any of these that are coming up? Yeah, the, one, the Austrian one, I will be, I am part of the flight planning team. So I help to prepare the actual plan for how the mission is going to go and prepare the, the detailed schedule. Then eventually then to every 15 minutes of the astronauts day will be planned during the mission. Uh, wow. so right, now, right now we've done it in one hour blocks for the whole mission already. 
but I will be very busy once the mission gets closer, planning it in more detail. That's brilliant. And surely you've been exposed to all this and doing all this, that if it came down to being selected for an actual space flight, you must be a number one candidate for that. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth and uh, talk too big of a game because the competition out there is really, really tough. Especially when you consider, you know, I've been working hard at this for the last 10 years and I'm 28 now. Uh, it may seem like I'm highly qualified, but there's other people who are in the same boat who made the same decision, some of them even earlier than I did. And they've been at this a lot longer. So the, the CVs and qualifications of the people I'm competing with are completely unbelievable out of this world, if you want to have a pun in there. Um, so, you know, the, the competition is tough. Uh, I can say I have an advantage in being young, but I might be too young uh, versus the extra experience that some of those other people have on me. And some of these people are themselves long-term analog astronauts who haven't just done the one mission I've done recently, but they've done multiple, or they already work in astronaut training. Uh, you know, I, I'm talking to and competing with the absolute best of the best in this field from across Europe. So I don't want to say that I have a better chance than anyone else. We're all going in here with extraordinary qualifications, each and every one of us, and no one can say at this point that we have a better chance than anyone else. How long are you, uh, or how long have you got left until the end of the, the process where, where you get told you're, you're in or out? The final decision, uh, well, uh, getting told you're out could come a lot sooner, uh, but the final decision for the new class of East astronauts should come in October 2021, or okay. rather 2022. So that is, it's an 18-month selection process. It will be uh, the, towards the end of next year. We'll actually officially know who are the new people. But it will be across five to six selection phases. So at each of these breaks, you know, 80, 90% of the people who are left will be cut out each time. So it will be a dramatic reduction in the number of people passing each stage. Last time that ESA had a call, it was uh, about 8,500 fully qualified applicants who passed the first screening that like their application was acceptable. Um, and then from that, they had to whittle it down to six people who were ultimately selected, the current active ESA astronauts. This time, there's a little bit more hope for all of us because they will also be selecting approximately 20 reserve astronauts for the first time ever. These will be people who will not be hired by ESA and won't become permanent astronauts. They'll continue to do their normal job, but they will be identified as having a specialized skill set that is useful in space for potential missions that may be planned. So they'll, ESAM may then come to those people and call them up for a four-year contract to be an astronaut for four years. Just go through the training, the mission specialist training, go to space, do their mission, come back, get the rehab assistance, and they'll be released again from the contract back to whatever they were doing otherwise. Wow. So there's quite a bit to it, but like I said, or like you said, there's a there's a, an extra kind of avenue that you could possibly go down. And is there any any way of if you got reserve astronaut, is there any way that you could you could get made a permanent one somewhere down the line, or are you just specifically there in case someone goes out sick or in? Uh, I mean, you could be there for backup. Uh, let's uh, not jinx it and talk about accidents or tragedies. But uh, if someone had any reason to retire early or anything then most likely the reservists could be some of the first people that might be called up. But on the other hand, 
I imagine the people who may be chosen as reserve astronauts may have very different skill sets from a career astronaut. A career astronaut needs to be the ultimate generalist who can do anything you ask of them. Uh, but ESA has the freedom to choose much more specialized people to be reserve astronauts where there's a very, very specialist job that they need done and they can't spend five years training an astronaut to do it. So they can just go straight to that specialist who they've selected to be a reservist and they'll say, hey, you are the mission specialist to do this and only this and you're going on this mission. So it gives them freedom to, to, to target people who are more specialized than a typical career astronaut company. Brilliant. It almost sounds a bit like uh, Big Bang Theory would have sent Wallowitz up. Um, he, he was never an astronaut, but he, he was an engineer who, who had a specific skill set. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would be something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, let's say the reserve astronauts will be the Wallowitzes. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But <laughs> I'll take it if it's me. <laughs> and do you know what other kind of things you have coming down the line towards you as in terms of, of during the selection process or during the training for a space flight? Like, if you weren't to get it and training for a space flight, what would that training package look like? So suppose I'm selected and I start the training. Yeah. So astronauts, once they're selected, will do one to two years of astronaut basic training before anything else. So they're not even really in the running or consideration for a mission until they complete that. And that will cover absolutely everything. They'll be learning languages. They'll be learning physics. They'll be learning engineering. They'll be learning medicine, firefighting. They'll be doing underwater training. Uh, because that is the closest we can get on the ground to a space-like environment you get. You do uh, any divers uh, in your audience will be familiar with neutral buoyancy as a concept where you are going underwater and you are setting your, your buoyancy control specifically so that you become neutrally buoyant. It means you're not going to float up and you're not going to sink down and you are floating in, in still air or still water as though you are in space with no gravity acting on you. Um, you are, for all intents and purposes, in, in a physical sense, you are reducing the net force, uh, the net vertical force on you to zero so that you don't rise at all. Um, and so that is the kind of environment then that we use to train astronauts. It's the closest analog that we have to a, a zero gravity environment for them to experience what that is like and the difficulty of being in their suit in these kinds of conditions where any kind of force will send you careening in the opposite direction, um, albeit in this context with the benefit of a lot more friction from uh, the water that you're in. Whereas if you do it in space, you will really just go spinning. So it's a great opportunity for them to prepare for that, uh, but still only the closest that we can do. It's still very different from the real thing. Say so being being the real thing as well, like you, said, you mentioned the friction of the water. Um, in space, it's, it's just, there's just nothing, is it? You could just touch off something and that'd be it, just keep going. If you let go of the ISS, that's the last anyone's going to see of you. So yeah, you need to be very careful uh, when you're when you're in space. But of course, they're also tethered. You know, the, uh, again, climbers, again, will be very familiar. You'll be hooking on at various different points as you go along. You'll never just be holding on by your hands because all it takes is a split second and you could be gone. So you, it, there's all sorts of safety and precautions involved and nobody wants any accidents, least of all the people who are up there. So it's all as careful as can be given the, the very dangerous nature of the environment. 
It makes sense, but it's also an amazing thing as well to have such an dangerous environment like space and then have people living in it for like could be, could be up, to, up to six months. And the fact that you've put your hand up and say, I want to do this, that that's amazing. I take my hat off to you as well for that, Gillian. That, that, that's really, really cool. Well, you've mentioned that you're doing things, uh, uh, studies with, with the moon and stuff like that. Do you think that we'll see uh, people going back to the moon at all? I do. Uh, I, there's a lot of... Uh, crossed wires, I think, especially in the public perception between the moon and Mars and where are we going next? Um, because there's a lot of excitement and a lot of hype, especially with all the people following SpaceX these days for going to Mars. Well, some people feel like the moon is done, it's all news, why would we go there again? We've been there a few times and there's nothing interesting anymore. But that's not really the case, at least not if you ask me. I think most people with their heads on straight in the space industry know that before we can go any deeper into space, we need to actually have somewhere that we can practice long-term habitation in space, especially on a terrestrial surface that is not like the Earth. So the moon is the perfect test bed for us to prepare people and develop the technology that would be necessary to survive on Mars. You go to, straight to Mars, you don't have the support system, the support access. You can get help to the moon in a week if you need to, or faster if it's an absolute necessity, you can find a way. But there's times when you will have to wait two years before there's any possibility to get any assistance to Mars. So you go there without the proper preparation, those people won't have help if they need it, and that's a death sentence. So the moon is the first place for us to go and test everything and get it right. And then we know in advance everything's already perfectly prepared. By the time we get to Mars, it's just business as usual. So that's where we want to get to with going to the moon first, or going to the moon again, is it will give us that test bed, as well as then from a, a different perspective, there are minimal possibilities that, people, that there are businesses that want to exploit mining on the moon for, for commercial profit. And from a scientific or engineering perspective, you can build bigger than is ever going to be possible on the earth because again with reduced gravity you can just build a megastructure with relative ease on the moon so you can build all sorts of huge facilities giant observatories with incalculable um, scientific potential not only because they can be so much larger than we can practically build on the, on the earth but because without the atmosphere then there's no more interference with our observation of space from the moon so it, there's all sorts of benefits for science, engineering development, for technology, and even for wealth acquisition on the moon, which obviously is an awful lot more uh, appealing prospect than going all the way out to Mars, which takes so much more effort and uh, in terms of returns has a lot less potential because it's a lot harder to get anything back. It makes it sense what you were saying about like going to the moon first and everything, because Going to Mars, it, it takes a long time to get there and it's very far away. And if you want to be living in that kind of environment, you want to be doing it right. Um, so it does make sense that you say you go to the moon and, and design and stuff there and then do all the testing there as it were. But even even saying that, that's pretty cool. Like most people just have passport stamps and all to Malaga. And uh, you, you'd, be, you'd be getting to go like to the moon and ISS, which would be, which would be amazing. Um, how, how long actually, I always wondered, how long roughly would it take to, to get to the moon after, after launch? So it would depend very much on how you go about getting there. Uh, I think as a standard, you could expect it to take a week or two to, to go there. And it's not because we can't get there faster. 
But if you want to do it in a controlled way where you're not just crashing into the moon, then you need to do things a lot smarter and a lot more slowly and carefully. Uh, so you will probably start by going into a lower Earth orbit, roughly in the area where uh, the ISS is, and then you will make several transfers up to a higher Earth orbit, a transfer into a lunar orbit, and ultimately down to the surface. So you'll do it in stages, and each stage will be done very slowly and carefully, so you can easily connect one step to the next. If you try to go straight there, sure, you can, but that's if you want to shoot the moon, it's fine. You can do it in a day, you know, less. But we don't want our astronauts crashing into it and blowing up. That's not the point. So there's a lot of time necessary to do things right. Yeah, hundred percent. And how do you? Would you find? Um, would, would you prefer? Say, if you were given the option to, to get there, would you be looking now at Soyuz, or would you be looking at SpaceX to get you there? Uh, I mean, Soyuz has a really excellent track record i have to say it's it's old but it's tried and tested and there's a reason that they're still using it because uh as old as it may be it's still getting the job done and it is people are still coming back in one piece so i if if it was if i was offered a trip on a soyuz i'd take it i wouldn't be turning my nose up at it spacex is offering us uh let's say the luxury alternative uh, as it were they're doing excellent work at bringing the, space, the whole space industry into the 21st century because the risk-averse nature of space has left the whole industry a few decades behind the rest of the world in terms of technology. And SpaceX has thrown caution to the wind and really put the pedal down on technological advancement in space technology. So... Uh, it's not that they're doing anything different from anyone else, but they're just taking chances that no one else was prepared to on technology that hadn't been tested. And so they are really driving advancements now. It blows my mind that Elon Musk could take this kind of technology and re-land a rocket. And I'm sure, I think there was one that's been been up and back about five times now, uh, which which is absolutely amazing. But it must be great for you guys as well, because it's, it's a big cost-cutting exercise effectively because you're not getting new rockets every single time yeah no the the re-landing of the falcon rockets was a breakthrough revolution for space travel in general because as you say it's a huge cost reduction to not have to build a whole new rocket every single time you do something now we only need to rebuild part of it and repair the rest of it um, so it's still a big, it's a big, not only time or rather money saving, but time saving, because again, you're not building everything from scratch. You can essentially polish off the one that you've used before and put a new payload on top and off it goes again. So it's, it's the first step in probably what we'll see as the real spacefaring age. We've been kind of taking baby steps into space since the Apollo era or before, since Sputnik. Uh, but now with reusable rockets is probably the signal that we will start going to space on a whole other scale than we've seen before. Brilliant. And out of everything that you've done, Killian, because you've got an amazing resume that you've just reeled off to us there at the start of the interview, what would you say has been the coolest that, that you would consider out of that? Me personally, as a physicist, I think even the analog mission struggles to compete with two years with the Science Operations Center for Gaia. That is, that is a scientific uh, mecca where anyone would be proud to be a part of that. So uh, as an astrophysicist, I have to say my time spent in ESAC would be my proudest achievement to date. 
Brilliant. And if any other Irish fella was sat at home now, scratching their head, wondering what to do with their lives, and they're like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I myself, I wanted to be an astronaut up until about 2013 and then realised it was never going to happen for me. Uh, but what advice would you give to, to anyone who's sat at home now? They've just done a junior cert or they're coming up to it um, and, and want to look at doing it. What, what advice would you give to them? Um, well, so first of all, it's always easiest if you've got the resources to hand so some people just know where to look. Uh, so rather than being lost in a vacuum, talk to teachers, talk to professors, talk to people in the industry. We have all sorts of incredible Irish people already in the space industry who are more than happy to uh, help people to find their way, myself included. If you uh, want to include my email or something in, in your podcast episode notes, people can contact me if they're trying to find their way in and I'll, I'll let them know different ways that they can do the different levels. Um, depending on where you're coming from, you can you can get in, involved right now in a volunteer capacity with some of these missions, or you can, uh, NASA and ESA and all the space agencies are regularly running competitions all the way from little school kids and toddlers just to get them interested, right the way up to uh, postgraduate researchers. They're, they're constantly trying to get people involved, not only for those people's sake, but then they're just putting out these open questions of like, hey, can you guys solve this? And sometimes people end up getting jobs out of it because they come up with a great solution and get hired to make it a reality. So there's always ways in, but sometimes, especially with uh, such a vague, and uh, you know, it seems like a foreboding field to get into of space science. Uh, there's a lot out there, but it can be a little bit hard to track down sometimes. So talk to the people around you and uh, take help where you can get it. Brilliant. That's, that's, uh, I like that advice because it's one thing people don't think about is, is going to teachers and saying, look, this is what I want to do because it seems like such a specialised field. Um, so it's great that you've recommended actually go and talk to talk to people like that uh, and then yourself also there to, to give a hand. Um, as it stands at the moment, Killian, what are your plans and goals for, for the future? Or have you any ideas of, of what you want to try and do? Yeah, well, so uh, obviously with my kind of career ambitions, I'm always planning a few steps ahead. So I do have a few plans, even branching plans, depending on whether or not I'm lucky enough to be uh, selected in the astronaut selection, which would then make a lot of those decisions for me. But so that's on the table. But uh, otherwise, me and my wife have been planning to try and move back to Ireland for a while now. We're saving money in, uh, because we're, we're, we're making good money here and Hungary is a cheaper country to live in. So we're saving up for the time being, hopefully, so we can get a mortgage when we go home. And uh, I'll take the opportunity to do a PhD while I'm there, hopefully. Um, I've, it's something I've been trying to do for a while, but different circumstances keep getting in the way. Brilliant. And Killian, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, watching you go through all this and going through training and talking about it, it makes me so proud to be Irish. And I'm, I'm sure everyone is behind me when I say this, but we're all rooting for you. Our fingers crossed that so you'll get to that end goal and, and hopefully you'll, be, you'll make it in, into space. Thanks very much. And if I can just, uh, two last things, there's a lot of other Irish people who are out there and also applying. So uh, if you know anyone, make sure to share their names from the rooftops and get everyone in their country behind us all. It's not just myself, but there's so many other great people who could really use the support. And uh, also I should give a quick nod to the Irish Research Council, which is part of the reason that we're talking right now. And they were also the ones who funded my two-year traineeship with uh, with ESA. I say that's my proudest accomplishment to date. And they were the reason that I was able to do that. So they deserve their dues. 
Brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Killian, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute honour and I wish you all the best with the uh, upcoming selections. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you.